going to be in the book of 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles. 1 Peter, the first chapter. <clears throat> Ushers, there's a few more chairs up here in the front if anybody comes in late. That's a trick pastor if he's watching. I know it's been a challenge for us, obviously, but for many of us who have been with children or with elderly people in our family, just the concerns of getting out and being here and watching what we do. So it's a joy to see you be in the house of God on a Wednesday evening. I hope you're glad to be here. If you found your place in 1 Peter 1, I invite you to stand with me and we'll just read a couple verses as we introduce the lesson tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you would look with me in chapter number 2, in verse number, <clears throat> verse number 11, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, uh, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here we're commanded and encouraged by the Apostle Peter in this epistle to abstain from fleshly lust. He encouraged us in chapter 1 to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and then as obedient children, fashioning not yourselves according to the former lust. Basically what he's saying in these couple verses, and we'll look at a few more in just a moment. <clears throat> but he's saying as you live in this world, don't allow this world to become a part of you. As you're a part of the, 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 the world as far as where you work and where you're educated and where you live. He said don't let that become who you are. There ought to be a, a distinction, a difference between the believer and the world. And to abstain, and we're going to look at tonight a few motivations to abstain. The motivation to abstain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God. At times it <clears throat> comes and gives us a very direct and, and sometimes even chastening view of ourselves. Help us to accept it as truth, to believe it, to receive it. And most importantly, help us to obey it tonight. Speak to our hearts and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're living in an unusual day for more than a few reasons. This year of 2020, no doubt, will be remembered by most of the people in this room today, if not all of us. Did anyone hear last night there was a, like an eight-ton meteor that nearly hit the earth? Came like, I don't know, within like 100,000 miles of the earth. And uh, somebody in the news said that would have been so 2020, had a meteor hit um, in the middle of all this. It's been an unusual year. We're living in an unusual time, I think you could all agree. Some people have different views or perspectives of that. As far as our spiritual life, we're also living in an unusual day. We see a falling away, as the Bible predicted. We see churches who no longer preach the word of God. We see pastors who no longer stand for truth. We see uh, congregations who have left the, the Bible itself, no less the old past. It's nothing too new, but it seems like every day it becomes more new or more obvious, more evident. And maybe with the social media and the, the opportunity to hear different people through video or audio easier than it's ever been, we see it more evidently, but it just seems like it's all around us. And in fact, it almost seems like not only are we becoming less common, but we're becoming more unusual. But Peter, in these few verses and in these couple chapters, 
doesn't just recommend it, he encourages it. He says you ought to be a little bit unusual. You ought to be different. How many of you noticed a change? Brother Jedi was supposed to ask Sunday. A change in our building. Something outside is different. Anybody notice? Did anybody notice you can see the sign on the back wall of the gymnasium better on the outside? How many of you have no idea what I'm even talking about? A few of you. It used to say Mount Zion Baptist Church, independent. Years ago, it said fundamental. Recently, in the last couple of years, it just says fundament. Because the tree that was standing there has worn away the last couple letters. And so the other day we cut it down and I took down the fundamental. So pastor goes out of town for a few days and we are no longer fundamentalists. I told Jedediah, I said, maybe we should take down the Baptist and see if anyone notices. And uh, that would be quite the unusual event for him to return and see that we're no longer Baptist. No, we're still Baptist and we're still independent, but we're, we're no longer fundament, fundamental or fundament. I think it said fundament. But you know, in our day, people are taking down those types of signs, not because they're worn out or falling apart, but because they don't want to be associated with independent Baptists. They don't even want to be associated with, it, with Baptists anymore. But here Peter, he gives us a warning and a reproof and an encouragement, not necessarily to remain Baptist, but to abstain or push away from the temptations and the... Uh, the We'll look at just a moment, the, even the appearance and these fleshly lusts that war against our soul. The things that are opposing us, the things that are holding us back, the things that are just irritating us spiritually. He says, don't allow them to become a roommate with you. Instead, remove them from your life. Push back on them. Let's look at a couple examples of where we find this word abstain. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3... Why don't you, let's just turn there, First, to the left, 1 Thessalonians. It's the first of the T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse number 3, it says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Pastor talked a little bit about that the other night as he talked about this doctrine of our salvation. We've been sanctified, a cleansing Sanctification wasn't, it was a one-time occurrence as far as our salvation was concerned, but it should remain a continual um, daily and sometimes even more frequent occurrence as we cleanse ourselves. And he says, as a part of this sanctification, he says you should abstain from fornication. He, he says you should abstain from immorality in your personal life or in your marriage. You should push away from that. Now, I don't think anyone would disagree, in this room anyways, that being unfaithful to your spouse is, is against God's will, against God's law, His commands. That's pretty easy to preach. I think most people would agree in this room that God designed marriage for one man and one woman and an intimate life after marriage. And most people would not disagree on that. So that's basically easy to preach. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, it gets a little more difficult this is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, and verse 22. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. He said, don't just abstain from evil. He said, abstain from the very appearance of evil. He said, stay away from things that would appear that you're involved in that are evil. Now, the word evil is not completely defined here. He doesn't give us examples Sometimes that's unfortunate, but obviously this was first century writing. And the evils of their day and the things that they were to abstain from would probably have been very easy for us because they're probably not existent. So the application wouldn't have been there. Instead, he gives us really the encouragement or the responsibility to go to God and, and seek God and walk with God and allow God to point out the things in our life or the things around us that are evil. And he says, oppose even the appearance of them. Don't do things that cause you to appear to be involved in it. Those are the other two times this word abstain are mentioned as commands. And now go back to 1 Peter in chapter 2. In verse 11 where he says in the middle or the second half of the verse. Abstain from fleshly lust. 
which war against the soul. Another area or example of somewhat difficult preaching. He doesn't say lustful sins or evil sins. He doesn't mention even sins. He just says fleshly lust. He says carnal desires or, you, or things that you are that are appealing to your flesh. And I think in some cases that doesn't even mean they are sinful. And they may not be sinful to someone else, but they may become a snare unto you. And he says if they become a hindrance in your spiritual life, if they become uh, something that's warring against your spirit, if they're minimizing your influence, he said if, uh, abstain from them, push them away. Now, this, this type of preaching is not popular anymore, as you can imagine. Because we're living in a culture where everyone just wants to accept everything as they are. you know. And, and, and by the way, the church ought to be open to all people. Those doors are open to whoever you are from whatever race or background or whatever you're involved in. You're welcome to come in. And the, the people of this church ought to love them and accept them. But as a believer... Those who have accepted Christ, we'll begin to look at this in just a moment. There ought to become distinctions as you grow in the spirit, as you walk with God, as you become a mature Christian. There ought to be a change that occurs in your life. And if there's no change outwardly, there may not have to be. There ought to be a big change inwardly. And your inward change is going to influence your external appearance. He says, push those things away. I'll give you an example. Some people, um, there may be people here tonight that um, are involved in some type of a, uh, like a hobby sport. Uh, I think Brother Crane is involved in bowling. Not right now, probably. Are you bowling again? Not, not really. He's a bowler. You, and some of you wouldn't have expected it. He is a world-renowned bowler. Don't let him fool you. He won't, he's a, he's a humble one, though. Some people enjoy golfing. Uh, our young people, some of them enjoy basketball or volleyball. Um, there's a few evildoers who like that soccer game, which is not good at all. Any of those things by themselves, as you can imagine, there's nothing wrong with them. But I've seen personally, firsthand, where people allow a sport or an activity to begin to separate them from their church family. They, it separates them from the ministry all of a sudden, they've got to go to, you know, multiple practices and they can't come to church Wednesday night and they miss Sundays because of, uh, of a ball game, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, this, this activity, this carnal lust that wasn't necessarily sinful prior to them giving their all to it now became a snare to them. It's now become something that is deviating them from the will of God. You remember the nation of Israel. Joshua was told as Moses was when they would go into these, these nations that were godless and, and, and idolatrous, that they were to, to uh, destroy everything. Every, every idol, every garment, sometimes all the cattle, all the sheep, and in some cases, every human being and everything breathing within. And you say, wow, that's, that's tough, that's, that's kind of harsh. And it, it, sometimes when you look at it at a distance, it is. But if you study Joshua and Judges, the books... You find where there were times where they didn't do that. And it wasn't long before the people who they spared began to, to, to destroy them and even put them into bondage. And many more souls were lost because of their lack of obedience to God than had they destroyed them in the beginning. There are times where we allow something into our life and we hold on to it. And we allow it to grow. And we allow it to take control of us. And instead of holding on to it, it then holds on to us. We heard a sermon a few weeks ago about money and the, the potential of, of the evil that can come with the desire for it. By itself, a dollar bill has no evil to it. It's just a, an adamant object. It just sits there. But people become greedy and beca can become lustful with their finances and become selfish. Anything to somebody could become... This, this snare. So how are we in the 21st century, while it just seems like morality declines, we find that the moral compass of our nation seems to be upside down at very best. We've, we've removed the Bible as a society from our daily lives. There, therefore, we've become 
uh, you know, we become the thermometer and the thermostat. We, we decide how warm we want it, and then, and then we change it. We decide what's right or wrong, and then we change it accordingly. But we don't have a true moral guide. And so it's just every man for himself and everyone's opinion for himself. But as Bible believers, we, we view the Bible as the authority. And we say there's certain things that are right. There's th certain things that are wrong. There are certain things that may not be sinful at, 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 the, at the front of them. But we don't let them control us or consume us. How do we ration that in the 21st century? How do we, how do we find motivation to stay faithful to what's become so unpopular? In these couple chapters, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts tonight. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18. He says, For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of the Lamb without blemish and without spot, Look down in verse number 23, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Just in two words, number one, I would say the new birth. Your salvation ought to immediately change who you are. And if your salvation didn't, didn't that's not a biblical salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, a familiar verse, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold... All things become new. Now, does that mean a person changes their habits and everything about them overnight? Obviously not. But when a person is born again, the Spirit of God comes to live within them. And can two walk together except they be in agreement? No. There becomes a, a desire and a need to change one's attitude and one's actions away from this world toward God. Now, it's not normal. It's not natural. Instead, it's supernatural. But most of us in this room tonight has, have experienced that. Some of you in more extreme ways than others. Some of you at salvation, you, you knew you were headed down the wrong path. Your, your life was a wreck. Your decisions had been poor. Your, your family may have been a, a mess. You, you may have been struggling with addictions. And you came to Christ. Christ met you where you were. And he saved you. He redeemed you. He gave you this new birth. And your life was transformed. Right there in and of itself ought to motivate us. As Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12, he says it's your reasonable service not to be conformed to this world, to be, but to be transformed. He said after what all Christ has done for you, it's your reasonable service to give your life to him. There are people here tonight that as we sing these songs, still sweeter every day. You don't even know what that means. Christ isn't sweet to you, and he, he isn't getting sweeter any day, no less every day. There are people in here to, tonight, and I'm not mad at you, but I care for you. And I, 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 you, you can see it. There, there are different people I've seen over the years, sometimes in the teen department, sometimes even while I'm preaching. And you can tell there's a disconnect from this microphone to your ears. There's something blocking. Now, it could be sin, obviously. It could be rebellion. But I think in, in many cases, it's a lack of true conversion. You need the new birth. You can't expect a person to abstain and to fulfill rules or obligations if they haven't had the change of heart that God gives you when you get saved. There are others, maybe you're here tonight, and you let your love for Christ grow cold. You've allowed that day that may have happened 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years ago to lose his excitement, to lose its joy. You forgot that oh, you were on the road to destruction you forgot that, but for the grace of God, it would have been your marriage, or it could have been your children, or it could have been your own life. But for the grace of God, you could be in hell tonight. But he saw you down in your sin, undeserving and unworthy, but he met you where you were and raised you up and saved your soul. That ought to be enough to cause you to give your life to him. He says, first of all, to these people, by the way, if we were to back up in verse 1, he begins with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers. That word strangers is the same word as we read in chapter 2 when it uses the word pilgrims. They were in a land that wasn't their own. They were occupying. And he goes on to mention these, these countries, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
present-day Turkey is basically where these countries are. If you can picture the, maybe you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea and where we're, we're accustomed to looking at Paul's journeys, the upper right-hand corner, that peninsula of land that kind of sticks out into the Mediterranean Sea, that was where all these regions were. It was a very large area, a geographical region that, that covers a, a big span of area. And there's no way to determine how many letters were sent forth. There's no way to determine how many times they were passed from one believer to the other or one church to the other. But I can assure you that the people that were reading this were all from all different spiritual walks of life. They were growing in different phases. Some were immature Christians. Some maybe were, were, had been believers for, for many years. They had a limited amount of the scriptures. They had no doubt a limited amount of teaching and discipleship. Because I suppose the, the best thought I could give or logic is that they were in that region because of persecution. But Paul or Peter writes to them and he says, you've been converted. You've been changed. Your life is not your own. It's been bought with a price. You are now in the family of God. And you ought to live for him. Number two, in chapter two, we find another motivation for abstinence. That is the word of God. Look at verse number two. <clears throat> it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. This is a per perfect example to, for me to confess this right now or just tell you this. But every day as I read my Bible, nearly every day, I'll read something that maybe I've read a hundred times and I think, ah, oh, that's what that means. I, I've been missing it all, all these years. I've read it so many times that I didn't know. I've, I've heard many times and I've even misrepresented this verse. It doesn't say as newborn babes desire. He says as newborn babes then comma. He said, you are in Christ, newborn believers. He says, as you, you people, as newborn babes, there you are. You're, you're, you're a young believer. You're immature. You haven't experienced much. You don't know much about the word of God. You don't know about much about truth. Here you are in this group, this category, newborn babes. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. He said one of the greatest things you could do is begin to form a desire for this milk. And that is the word of God. Now I've always, I, many times I've heard it and I've even read it and preached this. Just like a baby desires milk, you ought to desire milk. Now that's true, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying you're a, you're a new believer in Christ. Now you need to form a desire for the word of God. You need to learn to hunger, as Jesus said, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness... You need to choose to long for the word of God. Now, that's not something I can force you to do. That's not something, young person, your mom or dad can force you to do. That's a decision a believer has to make on their own. By the way, that's not a decision that your husband or wife can choose for you. Or even your children or your pastor or your teacher can choose for you. That's a decision believers have to make on their own. You say, how do I learn to desire the sincere milk of the word? Same way you learn to like about anything you start doing it you do it when you don't want to you do it when it doesn't taste that good and you do it a lot long enough and you begin to desire it you've seen i'm sure all of us have seen and maybe a missionary has reminded you of this where they'll bring in examples of some kind of exotic food that people are eating in different countries uh, i was just talking to someone a couple weeks ago and they were uh in uh, kind of the central Asia, basically the, the Middle East area. And there was a drink that they would give these people. It was a milk broth, hot, soupish. He, he said, I don't know what was in it. And he said, when they brought it out, um, he said, I pretended to drink it. You know, put it up to my lips, made a slurping sound. He said, I didn't swallow an ounce of that stuff. Well, he said, the guy with me didn't realize I was pretending. And he drank the whole thing. And he said, this guy got so sick while he was there. And uh, he was pretty sure it was from whatever was in this, this drink. Well, to them, they drink it all the time. It's no big deal. Because not only they had acquired a stomach for it, they had acquired a taste for it. You've seen where people growing up on certain, certain regions of the earth and sometimes even in our nation. Down south, it's more common for people to eat uh, greens and, and uh, grits. I still don't really care for grits. I don't even know if I've had them, but just something about it doesn't sound good, right? 
especially for breakfast. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. And uh, I don't want to eat grits in the morning. But if you're from the South, some of you maybe are even here tonight, and you, your mouth waters when you hear grits. Why? Because that's what you were raised on. Now, some of you haven't been in the Word of God, and you, you, you say, man, I, I'm not a good reader, and I, I don't really enjoy reading. Well, you learn to get in the Word of God, and you learn to soak it up, and you, you let God speak to you. And, and you, you, you get into the truth of the Scriptures, and I, I promise you as a believer, now if you're lost, you probably won't get an op- appetite for it. But as a believer, you read and you find encouragement and you find hope and strength each and every day. You get up in the morning, you, you might have to get up before the sun comes up or before the kids wake up. But you find enough strength and you say, through this word, I think I can make it through my day. Through this word, I think I can find hope. In John 17, 17, Jesus in this wonderful prayer speaks to the Father and says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. How are we sanctified? How are we cleansed? How are we kept from sin? Through the truth of the word of God. David writes in Psalm 119.9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. He said as you learn the word of God, as, as you receive it, as you obey it, it's able to keep you from sin. It's able to change not only your de- desire for the word, but it'll change your desires from the world. And it will motivate you to abstain. Look at a third thing. 1 Peter chapter number 2 and verse number 6. It says, Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. That word confounded is, is like ashamed. You won't, if you believe on this stone, this cornerstone, talking about Christ, you won't be confounded uh, that references from Isaiah 26, 16. And then he says, unto you, therefore, which, which believe, he is precious. He, he's peculiar to you. He's, he's, he's fitted for you. He's your redeemer. He's your stone. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed or rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. Look at verse 8. It says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, being unto, I'm sorry, whereunto also they were appointed. He says this stone who is Christ, this rock that David wrote so much about, this, this foundation, this place by which we can build the church and build our families and build our marriages and build our lives upon, this strength and, and this protection and this defense and this shade and this shelter, that stone that was rejected by the world but to you, it's precious, it's received, it's, rede- it's your redeemer. Look back how it started, though, in verse 5. He says, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation wherewith Christianity and the church is built upon. He said, but you, you are stones also. He said, you build the walls. <laughs> no reference to Mexico. You, you build the wall of Christianity. You build the house of God. You build the, the reinforcements against sin. You build the foundations for morality in a, in a country. You build the hope for the future. And he says, you're not just stones, but what kind of stones he says there? He says, you're lively stones. As believers who have experienced a new birth, as believers who are in the word of God, as believers that learn to experience, this is number three, the abundant life. This is our motivation to abstain. See, one of, our, one of the problems among believers today, and I think some of them are true believers, they've never left their, their maybe what we could call our comfort zone over here, They've never stepped out by faith and began to experience a relationship with God. They've never learned to walk with God. They've never learned to pray and get prayers answered. They've never learned to witness. They've never learned to go to people who are in sin and try to deliver them from the snares of the devil. They've never once, and surely not uh, for days or weeks or months or years, experienced the joys of seeing people converted or helped to the gospel. They've never been involved with missions and seen the work of God go forth all around the world. 
And it's hard to be real motivated when you're over here in this area. This is like the, the, the string that's so far down on the bench. They, they never take their warm-up jerseys off. You've seen that, right? They're down here, and they don't even take their, 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 their jumpsuits off, their, their warm-up jerseys. Because they, they have no expectation to go in. They're hoping for one of two things. They're hoping, I hope, that, number one, I hope we get up by about 20 or 25 points. Or I hope we're losing by 20 or 25 points because that's the only way I'm getting in the game. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of fun to cheer still, but it's not real motivating to be involved in a game when you're, when you're there. But some believers are there. They come to church. They fill a pew. They sing. Maybe they, you know, they, I'm not minimizing small tasks around the building because they're all important. But they've never really plunged into a spiritual walk. They've never really plunged into the ministry. And I wouldn't be too happy if I was there either. Because there's joy. We sing the song sometimes. There's joy, joy, joy in serving Jesus. Joy that throbs within my soul. It's been, pastors may mention this a few times. All of our ministries have suffered this year. As you can imagine. Um, some of them more greatly suffering. Um, one that I'm involved in is the nursing home ministry. Because that was the first thing they shut down. They closed the door and told us, don't come back till further notice. And we were expecting, you know, a couple months, three months, four months, six months. And I, you know, there's no telling when at this point. And it's been challenging. We've seen three or four people that were faithful in our, our services have passed away. And, uh, and you know, for, for months and even years, we've been able to go in and see, I can, I can, Several different times, remember different instances where we stood around the bed of someone who they said probably didn't have much longer. And to sing them hymns and watch their smile come over their face. And some of them were, it seemed like they were unresponsive. But as the, as the hope of the word of God through song began to ring into their ears, it was like life began to resonate in their bodies. There's, there's joy in that. That's a lot more fun than going home and watching Whatever you can watch now on Sunday afternoons. NASCAR. That's still a good sport. That's still a, a, an American sport. But there's a lot more joy in being involved with people. It's harder. It's, it's, it's tiresome. It's sometimes a struggle. But there's joy in that. And when you find the joy in serving... It motivates you to refrain from the world because you don't need all these fleshly appetites to replace what God's already giving you. See, this is really how the Christian life works. You begin to fill up on the Spirit and fill up on God and fill up on the Word of God and fill up on truth. And you get so full, you don't have any appetite for the things of this world. You've been somewhere, I'm sure, where the food was just that good and you ate and you ate and you ate. And when you got done, you looked at the card that looked so appealing, the dessert, you know, that's sitting on the table. And 20 minutes ago, you would have loved to have had it. And now you can't even stand to look at it. Because you filled up on something a little bit better, a little more solid, a little more reassuring, a little less calories. And now to look at that chocolate pie or whatever it might be, it, it lost its appeal because you now have a full belly. You fill up on the things of God and you'll lose your desires of the thing of this world. We sing the song sometimes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We looked at the new birth. We looked at the word of God. We looked at the abundant life. Let me look at one more verse or a couple of verses with that in mind and we'll move on. In chapter number four of first Peter. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This goes through 11, but we won't read all of them. Verse number 1 <clears throat> says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourself with the same mind that Jesus had when he was suffering on the cross, when he was suffering as a, as a man on this earth. For he that has suffered in the flesh, he who has persevered, he who has overcome the flesh, has ceased from sin. You, you found victory in Christ. 
You've, you've armed yourself, you've walked in the Spirit, you've found victory, and you've separated yourself from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. He said it, it could have been that we would have just fulfilled the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, that's basically giving in to all desires, all carnal desires. Lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings. That's why I don't come to banquets. It's not biblical. No, he's talking about basically parties and what we would call the nightlife of our day. Revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Look at verse number four. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. He said, that to, to them you look funny. To them, you, you, you're going to church again on Wednesday night. You must be a fanatic. You must be a true fundamentalist, right? You, you must be sold out. You, you, you must be crazy. He said they mock you. They may even persecute you. But then he says in verse 5, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? See, he's going to judge two groups of people. He's going he's to judge those who are alive, the quick, and the dead. Those who are, are, are still in their sins. Now, I think he's talking about the saved and the unsaved here. But I know that as believers, we're going to be judged as well. We're going to stand in his presence and see he who gave his life... He who they pierced. And I think we'll all wish we'd given him more, but now's our opportunity to abstain. Let's move on. First of all, we looked at the new birth. We looked at the word of God. We looked at the abundant life. Look there in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, or 2 verse 13. Now let's go back to verse chapter 1. Sorry, I did write it down right. I thought my notes were wrong. This is where we began tonight. Verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in, the, in your ignorance. And then in verse 15 and 16, he commands us, Be holy, for I am holy. And then look again in verse uh, chapter number 2. <clears throat> in verse 11. Dearly beloved. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lust. Which war against the soul. He says as believers. You are not the same as you used to be. You have now a new identity. He calls us pilgrims here. Next month, we will celebrate 400 years from the pilgrims loading up on the Mayflower. You guys have been counting on the days, haven't you? It's the first week or two of September. They loaded up, and for 10 weeks, they went up and down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. What a ride that would have been. Prior to that, I brushed up on my pilgrim history. Prior to that, they had already left England... And for close to 10 years, they were in the, the Dutch region, the Holland region, trying to avoid the, the legislation from Parliament, from the king who required them to worship as he chose. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. So they fled that persecution. They went to Holland. And for about 10 years, they were there. Well, they found that that culture was eroding the the cultural English beliefs that they were trying to establish in their children and their families. They also found that it was harder to obtain a, a spiritual and, and religious setting in a foreign land. And then as non-citizens, they couldn't find permanent occupation. And, and so they said, we've got to do something different. <clears throat> that was their exact words. They were sitting around one night. We've got to do something different, they said. And they did. After several attempts to depart, they finally, sometime in the beginning of September, 1620, they loaded up on the Mayflower and set sail. What a, you know, we talk about long, we just went on a trip a couple weeks ago with our kids, and it was one of the first trips 
they've been in the car for more than 20 minutes at a time. And we're in the car for a couple hours at a time. <clears throat> and within about, you know, 10 minutes, are we there yet? Are we close? You know, th we, we went through that. Some of you have been on, some of you guys are crazy. You drive down to Florida. Uh, Brother Jedediah is out of his mind to take all those kids on his trips. Um, many, many hours at a time. That's why the hair, brother. That's the, you could solve that. So we, we remember when the Moors went to South Africa and what, 17 hours on a plane? That's quite the journey. Imagine 10 weeks though in a, not a cruise. Some, some people experienced 10 weeks in a cruise um, this, past, this past spring. Um, not because they wanted to. But the, the pilgrims there on that Mayflower, that voyaging ship, 102, right at 102 of them, sailing to what they really didn't know. They weren't sure. They, they supposed, they knew there could be, their, they, their thoughts were they would find religious freedom. They'd be able to assemble and meet and worship as a congregation. Imagine that. We find it hard sometimes to get motivated to come to church on a Sunday morning. They, they packed everything up and, and headed out for a mysterious journey so that they could have church on Sunday. For 10 weeks, they, through the perilous waters, sailed to the new world only to arrive when winter was arriving as well. And we, most of us know the story about that first winter, the difficulty um, they were surprised when they showed up and there were no houses built for them and fires, you know, raging. And they showed up with nothing, not enough food, not enough sustenance, no shelters. They had to begin to work and to build. But you know, on that first fall, what we consider now to be Thanksgiving, a year later, they're rejoicing. Not because they had everything that the English people had. Not because life had become easy, but they knew that their pilgrimage had finally ceased. It had finally ended. It had finally fulfilled. Their destination was finally fulfilled. As believers, we have a new identity. We too are pilgrims. Pilgrims not traveling to a new world, though sometimes I think all of us wish we could. Not pilgrims going just to a new location, a residence, but we're going to a permanent dwelling. In heaven. He says we're, we're pilgrims. This world is not our home. Not only are we pilgrims. Look up in uh, verse number. Number nine. It says. But ye are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people. He said you're, you're, you're peculiar. That doesn't mean you're strange. Or weird. Though some of you fit into that category. Right there with me. Right. Some of us are a little bit peculiar, though in this world we ought to be peculiar as we use the word. But this word peculiar is more talking about personal, a love that God has for us. It's like the, 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 the child, the face that only a mother could love, right? We're that person to God. God says, I'm the only one that could love him. I'm the only one that could love her. I'm the only one that could love this group of people. In their sin, in their unbelief, in their stubbornness, in their pride, he says, you're still mine. We, we mean something to God. You know, if the fact that you're saved wasn't good enough, this ought to be good enough to you. God says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you for me. He says, I, I, I want you to walk with me. I, I want you to... Talk to me. I want to commune with you. And not only that, but I want you to consider yourself a pilgrim because I've got somewhere for you to go. And it's not this, this earth. He said, I've got a better home for you. I've got a mansion prepared for you. He said, I've got streets of gold and, 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 and royalty and, and riches and eternal life for you to enjoy. And if we could receive that as fact and embrace it, there's nothing in this world that would become so appealing and attractive that we would sacrifice our walk with God for. Or that we would sacrifice our commitment to the Lord or the ministry for. He says you're a royal priesthood, you're a child of the king, you're peculiar, you're chosen by God for God. And you're a pilgrim. You're in but not of this world. 
Let's just quickly look at two more things. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. We read it just a moment ago. Let's read it again. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which what? Which war against the soul. Can I tell you uh, uh, to abstain, a motivation to abstain is that it prevents unnecessary warfare. Ephesians 6, 11 and following give us a, a good idea of what's taking place around us. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He says Satan has, has snares for you. He has these tricks and these traps and this deception. He said, arm yourself that you, that you don't fall to him. And then he goes on, as you, most of you know, he says, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he goes on to give us the, the description of armor. We have spiritual warfare all around us. There is a, a push against the church, against believers, against you personally, whether you're on the job or whether you go to school, even if you're in a Christian school, there's a push against you everywhere you turn. Why set yourself up for more temptation? Why invite temptation into your home? Why invite temptation into your marriage? Why invite temptation for your children? We see it in the media. We see it in our entertainment. We see it now in, in uh, you know, cartoons and, and what you would think was innocent and things for children. Uh, just the world is sneaking in all sorts of deception. We see it everywhere we go. You can even go to church some places and find it. It's amazing. I, I, I've, I don't, uh, Brother Jason Hawkins gave some references to this Sunday night or Wednesday night. Or other, uh, I guess it was Sunday night. Um, just talking about some of the, the things he's heard preachers say, where they've just taken a scripture and, and what it means, they're not preaching it, they're just basically preaching opinions with a Bible verse to go with it. And you can find that in all sorts of places. If you, if you want a preacher that will, as Paul wrote to Timothy, um, we would use the phrase, tickle your ears, Right? and just appease or, or appeal to your, your desires and your conscience, you can find it. But as a believer who wants to serve God, not man, who wants to please God, not be popular, who wants to abstain from the things that would bring him down spiritually, why set yourself up for more failure than, you, than need be? Unnecessary warfare is a motivation. And finally... 1 Peter 2.12, or 2 Peter 2.12, right below the verse we just read. It says, having your conversation, those, that's your lifestyle, your actions. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, <clears throat> they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Sounds a whole lot like what Jesus said when he told us we're the light of the earth. And men may see our good works and glorify our, our Father which is in heaven. He says, having your conversation honest, it's sincere, it's transparent, it's unhypocritical. Who you are in church is the same person you are on the job Monday morning. Who you are with your family, and this how it ought to be, ought to be the same person who you are when you're with your friends. Who you are in your Sunday school class should be the same person you are when you're at the store or as you go about your, your social activities. And when they see a consistent pattern in your life. Yes, you may be mocked or scoffed or laughed at. You may be in some ways picked on. And I know for some people it's tough. I've got people at work for years They've kind of given up on this, but for years, they, this was their saying. There was a couple of guys. They said, we're going to get you to cuss one of these days. Um, so, so I just said, all right, let's just, let's just do it. Let's get it over with. No. Um, so I would always use real silly phrases when, you know, when other people would get mad and they would use profanity. Um, you know, fiddlesticks was my, my favorite go-to line just to kind of inflict some um, entertainment to them. But, you know, to some people, that would become shameful. As it was written up there in verse number 6, as we read a little bit ago, 
he that believeth on him should not be confounded or, or ashamed. You know, some people become ashamed by their appearance. They think, I'm the only one that dresses modestly in the world. Well, chances are you're not the only one, but even if you were, even if you were, the world needs to see some people that are different. The world needs to see young ladies and young men in the world that are different. The world needs to see men and women as they go to their jobs and as they go to their, 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 on, uh, just out shopping and, and in the world. They need to see something. When they look at you, they need to think there's something peculiar about them. You say, well, what if I get made fun of? What if you change their heart? What if you cause them to one day think there is a person who's sincere? There is a person who's honest. There is a person who loves God. You say, that'll never happen. Well, that's exactly what he says in verse 12. Whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they speak evil right now of you, but which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He said, one day, it may be a day, it may be a week, it may be a year, it may be a lifetime, but there are people, I believe, that you're going to impact with the, with the gospel, not because of what you said, though your words are important, but by how you lived. If it's okay to steal a quote from Mother Teresa, she made famous a line that said, preach the gospel everywhere you go and only use words if you have to. She wasn't the one that coined it, but I think she made it popular. But, you know, that's the truth. We ought to preach the gospel everywhere we go and only use words if we have to. Our lives ought to be a testimony of God and of what God's goodness can do. Our actions and our words, our appearance, we're living in a day where they say none of that matters. It doesn't matter what you're entertained by. It doesn't matter how you look. It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter, you know, what this or what that. Just, you know, it's, all that matters is what's in your heart. Well, I got news for you. The world can't see your heart. God can see your heart. Yes, that matters to God. But the world can't see your heart, but they can see your actions and they can see your appearance and they can hear your words. They can see your attitude. And if we would abstain from this world and push it away, it's not always entertaining, it's not always fun, it's not always enjoyable, but I can assure you it's always best. And one day as pilgrims, when we find our way to our heavenly home, we're not going to be ashamed, we're not going to be discouraged by what we sacrificed on this earth. I think we'll all agree that we'll wish we'd given more to him and, and left more of this world behind. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would help us as individual believers, but also as a church, church family. Lord, help us to identify the temptations that would Take root in our ministries, in our lives, in our families, in our worship. That we would identify them and abstain from them. Lord, may we be a holy people surrendered to you. That we might glorify you with our lives and that the world may glorify you because of our lives. Lord, we desire that you be glorified in every case. Help us to live out lives that please you. And give us the strength and courage to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.